From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting today, though, taking a look at cigarette warning labels that are soon going to be on cigarettes in Canada. New Health Canada regulations coming into effect on Tuesday make Canada the first country to require warning labels on individual cigarettes. Health Canada says king-size cigarettes sold in stores will have the warnings first by the end of July 2024. Regular-sized cigarettes and little cigars with tipping paper and tubes are next by the end of April 2025. Do warnings on cigarettes work? Joining us now is Rob Cunningham, Senior Poly, a Policy Analyst with the Canadian Cancer Society. Rob, thank you so much for taking some time today. Hi, Jill. Good to be with you. Is this something you think will work to deter young people, whether it's teenagers, from starting smoking or to help people quit? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. We're delighted by these uh, new regulations. A world first. And they're going to uh, reach every smoker uh, every day with every cigarette and every puff in every community across the country. Um, and we've almost 20 billion cigarettes sold each year in Canada. Um, and for kids, you know, adolescents who uh, may experiment by teenagers borrowing a cigarette from a friend, um, they, they may not see the package, but they'll have that warning uh, directly on the cigarette. And we know that kids at home uh, that who have parents who smoke, uh, they may nag their parents to quit smoking. Well, this gives them something else because the cigarette butts in the ashtray are going to have these warnings on them. One of them says, you know, tobacco smoke harms children. So it's going to give new messages and information for kids for their discussions with parents. This is a, this is a great uh, new measure. Uh, you mentioned what it's going to say or what one of the messages is that it harms children. How important is the actual message that is being printed on the cigarettes? Well, I think uh, the messages are important, um, but also the fact that it's happening at all. Because it's taking health warnings uh, for tobacco to a new level. It's going to be right there on every cigarette. It's going to be a warning. Uh, that can't be ignored. It's going to reinforce and complement the warnings that are on uh, cigarette packages. But also, it's going to, one of them that's going to be on cigarettes is going to be about, uh, uh, cigarettes cause, you know, smoking causes leukemia. Uh, another is that um, you know, it's a poison in every puff, which is tailored you know, to the fact that you really want people to, to start thinking about quitting sooner rather than later. Uh, so um, it, it, it's a fantastic measure. It's supported by research. There are several dozen studies in Canada, as well as other countries, that demonstrate that warnings directly on cigarettes are going to work. And is it different than having that warning printed directly on the cigarette as opposed to having that warning or even a picture of cancer, a pretty graphic image, having it on the package? Well, I think they're, they're complementary. We should do both. We are doing both. Next spring, there's going to be new, a new round of pictures appear on the, the packages as well. The current ones haven't changed since uh, uh, 2012. That's a long time ago. They're getting stale. Um, and, you know, the evidence is uh, that, you know, a picture says a thousand words. You know, there are many, many studies, hundreds of studies that show that these large picture-based warnings are effective um, at reducing smoking. That's why tobacco companies have opposed them because they reduce sales. That's why the tobacco industry, again, has opposed these new warnings on cigarettes because they're going to reduce sales. Uh, so they go together. Um, also, on the inside of the package, there's going to be cessation, uh, encouraging people to quit. There's going to be a toll-free number that's going to continue to appear on the packs where people can call to get uh, free help. And, of course, 
We have this objective of under 5% tobacco use by the year 2035. This would be one thing to help us get there, but we need to do many other things as well. With the objective going to under 5%, where are we now? So uh, Canada-wide, we are at um, uh, 12%, 11.8%. BC has the lowest smoking prevalence in Canada at 9.4%. Congratulations to BC. But it's still a leading preventable cause of disease and death, both in Canada and in BC. It's the number one public health issue. Uh, There's so much more that we need to do. And what do you say then to people who will look at these labels and have seen those labels again on the packages for as long as they have been there and say, I know it causes cancer. I know this is really bad for me, sucking the the smoke into my lungs. Of course, that's not good for me, but it's an addiction. It's something that I've been doing for years and people will continue to do it, even though they know that this is true and they now see it on the cigarettes. Well, I think for many people, that's absolutely true. This is not going to result in everyone quitting smoking. But there are also going to be life-changing moments um, that can make you look at those warnings again. You get pregnant. Um, Your uh, daughter or daughter-in-law gets pregnant. You're a grandparent. You're about to be a grandparent. Well, maybe you want to quit all of a sudden. Or you've got a friend or family member who has a heart attack. You know, you've been going along for 30 years, but then, you know, when your best friend dies, you know, or, or gets lung cancer, then it hits you and you look at that warning again and you may call that toll-free number for help. But there's also kids who are not yet addicted and we want to make, you know, the product uh, less attractive, you know, uh, in terms of their, with their friends, uh, you know, their peer group and having that warning on that cigarette is going to make the product less attractive, less cool. We also have in Canada, we're a high immigration country. We have many new Canadians who come from countries where knowledge of the health effects is much less than in Canada. Uh, so these these warnings um, have an especial potential, I think, uh, for that that part of our population. Uh, you mentioned that this is something that is is a good thing. It's a good move to be done, though, as well in kind of uh, in conjunction with other measures. What other measures are, are important in this and getting that percentage down so it's it's less than five percent who smoke? Well, you know, interestingly, uh, in tobacco, BC is falling behind many other provinces. And so there's an opportunity for Health Minister Adrian Dix to really toughen BC's uh, regulations. BC is the only province in Canada where tobacco can be sold in pharmacies. Uh, that makes no sense. Um, we should have minimum age 21 for both tobacco and e-cigarettes, something that PEI has already done. BC right now it's 19. There are 30 U.S. states, including Washington State, that have minimum age 21. There's a national law in the U.S. that should be you know, 21 for both tobacco. That is 21 for tobacco and e-cigarettes. BC does not ban all flavored tobacco products. Um, you, know, uh, you know, the federal government does it for cigarettes, but there's also uh, water pipe tobacco and chewing tobacco and, uh, and, uh, and heated tobacco products, all kinds of other products at BC. Uh, c- certain cigars, you can still have flavors. Um, that's simply wrong. BC should do what other provinces have done. Uh, BC has done well in terms of some of its recent regulations on e-cigarettes. However, uh, there's more that needs to be done in that area. Some other provinces um, have gone further. Um, BC has done well with respect to uh, increasing its tobacco taxes. Um, you know, there, there are some other provinces that have a similar rate of tobacco taxes as BC. BC is not the highest um, in the country. But one really important uh, current opportunity is the settlement negotiations uh, between BC, the other uh, nine provinces and tobacco companies. BC and the other provinces 
have these huge healthcare cost recovery lawsuits um, against big tobacco to recover the healthcare costs. Um, and out of that settlement negotiation that's currently happening, it is essential that there be significant measures to reduce tobacco use. We have a one-time historic opportunity. Adrian Dix can demonstrate leadership on this. Uh, he had been in the Premier's office uh, in a key role when BC initially began this process in the late 1990s. Uh, BC was the first province to file a lawsuit in Canada. BC should be taking the lead. I mean, after the settlement, it cannot be that for tobacco companies, it's business as usual. Um, they, you know, we need to get this industry under control. And so banning all remaining tobacco promotion, ensuring that at least 10% of the proceeds of a settlement go to a separate fund for long-term tobacco control, um, having targets to reduce tobacco use, that if they're not met, tobacco companies have to make significant extra payments. And for the 6 million pages of secret internal documents that have been provided in the pretrial parts of these, uh, these cases, these should all be made public. Uh, so there's a, there's a real opportunity, and, and we're hoping Adrian Dix can make that happen. I'm curious, something else that that often comes up when we're talking about this is when we talk about deterrence, is cost a a deterrent to people as well? Because then there's also uh, the the cynical way of looking at it is perhaps one of the reasons the province doesn't do this or the government doesn't do more is because they do make a lot of money from taxes on cigarettes. Um, So I think think governments now um, are... Uh, committed to reducing tobacco control and it, it, the tax revenues is not an impediment. We know that that, may, that was different in the 1960s, 1970s, maybe sometimes 1980s, but that's not the case uh, today. Um, taxes are the most effective strategy uh, to reduce smoking, uh, especially among youth who are just simply more responsive uh, to price increases. So what BC has done to increase tobacco taxes is, is great. And we applaud that. We applaud the Minister of Finance. And, you know, we've, um, uh, you know, we just have to keep at it. Uh, you know, tobacco companies don't like it. Um, you know, obviously, they don't want sales to go down. Uh, but sales are going down. And, you know, we, just, we simply have to, um, to do that. Now, we should be using more of those revenues, uh, you know, for initiatives to reduce smoking, cessation programs and mass media campaigns that are simply not happening in Canada the way, the way they used to, the way BC used to do. And, um, you know, so as part of, as part of the settlement, then, uh, you know, we, we can have those funds to do the things we need to do. And this, this is kind of uh, adjacent to what we were talking about, but you, you mentioned cessation and different ways for people to quit as well. What are your thoughts then on e-cigarettes in that they were marketed or brought out as a way to quit tobacco and maybe quit altogether? But then there is the issue of maybe there are people who would never start smoking tobacco. They wouldn't start smoking cigarettes, but do take up the habit of e-cigarettes. Well, uh, e-cigarettes are here to stay. Um, but we're very concerned about the very high rate of youth vaping, and including among young adults. There's a, a vast number of youth and young adults who have never smoked but are vaping and getting addicted to nicotine. You know, we have made progress to reduce e-smoking. We do not need a new generation to become addicted to nicotine through cigarettes, but that's exactly what's happening. Um, and so what can we do about it? Well, there's a draft regulation to ban flavors in e-cigarettes other than tobacco flavor published more than 24 months ago in June 2021. Uh, that's federal. So we have a new health minister, uh, Mark Holland. Uh, there's an opportunity for him to ensure that that regulation is finalized and, and, and strengthened. Um, minimum age 21 
uh, you know, is something that can be done. We can have plain packaging um, for e-cigarettes. Uh, but, you know, simply this, the situation that we have with more than half a million Canadians now who vape, who have never smoked, that's not what's supposed to be happening. Uh, you know, e-cigarettes you know, do have their role, um, you know, but we need to have better regulation. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Jill. My pleasure. Approaching 12.36 on this Monday afternoon, a new tentative deal reached between the two sides involved in a labour dispute, one that impacts some 7,400 port workers here in B.C., could mean long-term stability if ratified. That, according to the federal labour minister, Seamus O'Regan, that deal reached last night. It was reached with the assistance of the Canada Industrial Relations Board. The International Longshore and Warehouse Union, as well as the BC Maritime Employers Association Association released a joint statement saying they are recommending members ratify the deal. Union members have until Friday to vote on that offer. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Andrew Wynne-William, Divisional Vice President with the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you for having me, Jill. It's an important issue. Uh, It certainly is, and it's one that people might think it sounds like we've heard this before. That's because we have, and we are now back in this position where there is a tentative deal, there is a vote taking place. What is your response to the fact that this has happened again and this is where we're at? Well, we're we're very hopeful. Uh, We're glad they've been able to reach something, Uh, but we wish it had happened a whole lot sooner. Do you wish that the federal government had stepped in sooner? Yes. Yeah, we've been we've said that right from the beginning of the dispute that the federal government needed to take a more active role. Uh, and it, it, there's kind of two things here. One is, you know, for this specific dispute is trying to resolve it sooner. But more to the point, we think that the federal government needs, you know, to have more tools to prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. We know there's another port agreement on the East Coast that is due to come up uh, in, I think, end of December. And we don't want to go through all of this again. And what kind of an impact has this had on your organization and and companies that you deal with that, that depend on moving products through those ports? Right. So the manu- for, so for manufacturers, the impact is twofold because we have supply chain coming in, all kinds of you know bits and pieces that we use to create our products, and then we have the completed products going out. And so from the perspective of the manufacturers, it's kind of a double whammy. Uh, when we we surveyed our members earlier this month about the impact of the port strike, uh, shortly before the the first tentative agreement was reached. And at that time, two-thirds of the manufacturers we surveyed were feeling a significant financial impact. Uh, and of those surveyed, the two-thirds that, that responded or the two-thirds that said there was an impact, the average was $200,000 a day or just over $200,000 a day. Hmm. So it is uh, – people don't realize what a significant impact this is having. And what about the fact that we're we've now been in this position where there was a tentative deal, it was rejected. There was another deal, it was rejected. Because I would think that, and even when that first deal we heard about, 
everybody kind of focused on, okay, how long is it going to take to get things up and running again? How quickly can things start moving to how they were moving pre-strike? And then that kind of was all lost as well. How much more turmoil does that cause? Well, the uncertainty is a major issue, and it also goes to our, you know, our credibility internationally. Uh, we know that that you know the experts are estimating it'll take about a week for every day of job disruption uh, for the you know for the for the supply chains to get back to normal, uh, and that of course will you know push us off deep into the fall, and uh, not only deep into the fall but deep into grain season. So competition for you know track time is going to become more significant, and you know I. I've seen estimates that this won't be resolved until Christmas. Hmm. And even if if this deal is is uh, accepted, even if this deal is accepted, we're already pushing off deep into the fall for this to be completely, you know, for the backlog to be dealt with. And that's got to be, like you said, if we're talking about manufacturers, we're talking about members of your group losing out on 200,000 or or slightly more than that a day. Uh, you want to get back on track as soon as possible. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, obviously by this point, manufacturers are trying to seek alternative forms of transport, right? So they'll be trying to ship stuff through the states, or they'll be trying to, you know, some may consider air, which is very expensive. Uh, it's uh, they're you know they're looking at alternatives, uh, and you know until we see this agreement ratified, I suspect that many manufacturers will continue to seek a more secure alternative route until this is you know voted on. And I know uh, your group again is the Canadian manufacturers and exporters, but is this going to have a big impact? Do you think as well? Even if we just look at the the amount of product that even comes into Canada on the eastern port and is trained across the country and put on ships uh, at the the ports of BC and heading off to other markets, even things that aren't even destined for Canada. I don't know much about that. Actually, I can't comment, so I, I don't know if the, the details of those kinds of agreements or those kinds of arrangements. I, you know, I can only speak to what's directly impacting on our manufacturers, and that impact is, as I know, noted, quite significant. One of the, or a couple of the, the main sticking points that we keep hearing, uh, although we don't know all of the details of this latest tentative deal, but we have heard from the union, the sticking points ha- have been contracting out and uh, their concerns about losing jobs there, as well as automation. I'm guessing, though, in your industry, in manufacturing, that there is a lot of automation or there has been a lot of change in the industry moving to automation when it, it seems uh, more cost effective when it can be done. Uh, do you think it's fair that 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 is one of the sticking points or that that is what is holding up what it appears to be that is something that's holding up this deal it's an excellent point from our perspective in the manufacturing space uh, automation actually creates greater efficiencies greater competitiveness and does not lead to job losses it actually you know maintains or creates new jobs allowing companies to expand and be more competitive uh, I'm, it's, that does strike me as unusual that, uh, you know, a port system that, you know, one study had is the, the second least efficient port system in the world uh, is, you know, that they're trying to find ways to prevent it from being more efficient. Uh, that's, uh, for us, that seems odd that that is, that is a sticking point when, as I noted, in the manufacturing space, automation does not mean job loss.
And uh, just getting back to the timeline again, uh, and uh, the federal labor minister saying that there needs to be something looked at to, to bring in long-term stability to make sure this doesn't happen again. And as you noted off the top, that there there are other deals that are going to be coming up. What what would you like to see brought in, or is there something that could be brought in? Do you think that would bring in also that long-term stability? We need so in. For things that involve major transportation infrastructure, where the collective bargaining process does not just, you know, involve the two parties, but in, but you know can essentially take a significant chunk of our economy hostage. In those kinds of situations, the federal government needs more tools to be able to act more quickly. Uh, whether those tools are, you know, are, are stepped in the sense that they can take measures earlier, so they could have acted perhaps back in March as opposed to waiting until the strike in June, um, or whether they, you know, have things like binding arbitration that they can draw on more quickly. And it also needs to be, you know, an attitude with the federal government trying to, you know, bring such key parties to the table more quickly. Well, we will uh, definitely see what happens next. Uh, is it is it um, upsetting to you, or, or do you think it's a reasonable timeline that they now have until Friday, so we actually will have to wait till the end of the week to see if this deal is accepted? I don't have any insight into their um, into their specific labor process, their specific union process, so I don't think it's really fair for me to comment on that one one way or another. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jill. Bye-bye. We have a couple of stories to look at right now. They do involve cycling. We're going to start, though, talking about this proposal for a series of bike highways. Joining me right now to talk more about this is Aaron O'Mellon, Executive Director with Hub Cycling. Aaron, thanks so much for taking some time today. Hi, Jill. Nice to be here. I think we have touched on this before, and I know this is an idea that comes in a report that was produced by your group. But remind us again, what specifically are you looking at or suggesting when with this series of bike highways? Mm-hmm. Cycle highways are high-quality bike routes that cover long distances, usually five kilometers or more, and they're connecting regional destinations. So they're direct, paved, lit, ample width. Um, and they prioritize people that are moving through active transportation. So it allows people to get where they need to go across different distances in a safe, comfortable way at all times of the day or year. And where do they go? These connect major destinations in the region. So a great example is the BC Parkway. It goes from Surrey Centre through New West, Burnaby, and into Vancouver. So it's connecting job destinations or shopping and housing centres so that people can get to those high-use destinations. Right. So, but but physically, do they follow transit oh, lines? Or physically, where? Yeah, where do you put? Where do you find space to put gotcha. them? It depends on the context. So in some areas, if you're looking at Surrey, there's a lot more space available. Uh, And so they can often go in the median beside the road or kind of adjacent, like there would be a grassy median uh, beside a motor vehicle roadway. And then there would be a paved cycle highway parallel to that. Sometimes they can go uh, a little bit further away as long as they're relatively direct. They can also follow rapid transit lines like underneath sky trains, which is what the BC Parkway does and the Central Valley Greenway. 
And when we talk about them being cycle highways, then would they be specifically for bikes and for cycling or are they, could they potentially in some cases also be say mixed use trails? They can be mixed use. It really depends on the volume of usage. So if there's lots of people using it, we like to separate out modes by speed. People cycling are going faster than people walking, for example. So ideally, those folks have their own space. Uh, But in the lower volume areas, you can combine them. And that's where education comes in, where when you're passing people, uh, you need to be communicating, letting them know you need to be slowing down and moving over. But you can do that safely in those lower volume areas. Are there examples of these kind of cycle highways or this kind of network in other countries? Yes, lots of examples in Europe. There's also some great examples of rail-to-trail cycle highways in North America. Um, We've got Denmark has hundreds of kilometers, Germany, the Netherlands, and there's lots for us to learn here because locally, two-thirds of people either already cycle regularly or they want to cycle. So that is the majority of people that live here. And and what's holding them back is a safe and intuitive way to use their bikes to get around. And so how is this better than, than say, the cycling, the the separated lanes, and in other cases, maybe not separated, but but painted line lanes, the series and network of bike lanes, and then maybe some road uh, cycling as well. How is this better or different from that? So there's a whole spectrum of cycling infrastructure. So you mentioned painted lanes. Those are not comfortable for most people. There's no physical protection if you're on some kind of a a major road. So if you're on a neighborhood road where it's very calm, low volume, that's okay to be sharing space. Uh, Then when you get up to more of a regular city street, like an arterial or a collector, that's where you need to provide protection. Um, So those are the protected lanes. And those are important for local journeys. So if I'm going from my house three kilometers uh, to the store, that can work. Cycle highways are looking at longer distances, so five or more kilometers. So if I'm at home and I want to get to my workplace that's 10 kilometers away, this cycle highway will provide a direct way. Right now, a lot of our communities have small segments of bike routes that might be comfortable, but then they end or they get really convoluted and they zigzag through and it's not easy to follow. And people are just not willing to take that inconvenience, although they really want to ride because it provides them the physical and mental health benefits. They connect more with their community socially. It's providing air quality benefits, all of those things. A lot more affordable is a huge one for people right now and much more equitable across the different people here in our region. And what about the cost of building the cycle highways? So cycle highways are much more affordable than motor vehicle infrastructure. Um, We've got some great examples where you can build hundreds of kilometers, over 480 kilometers of bikeways would cost the same amount as one mile of a four-lane freeway. I want to kind of touch on something you mentioned, and that was a a bit of the etiquette when there's a lot of people using the trails and making sure that people know you're passing them or if you're coming up behind them. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about this because there was a story out of uh, Victoria off uh, out of Vancouver Island, and it happened on the Galloping Goose Trail. I know a lot of people will be familiar with that trail, a very busy, very popular trail. Uh, This was an incident where a pedestrian says that she was hit by somebody going quite fast 
on an e-bike and perhaps raising the issue of maybe there should be more speed limits or more more controls over that. What are your thoughts on on the fact that we are seeing more and more electronic bikes on the bike mm-hmm. lanes and the bike routes and they go pretty fast? Yes, for sure. This is a really important evolving issue. Lots more people are getting e-bikes and they're allowing many more trips to be taken by active transportation, which is really exciting and comes with a big responsibility that people need to understand and learn how to do this safely and respectfully for all of the users. So Galloping Goose is actually very close to a cycle highway and you can see how popular it is. Many people are using that to get where they need to go. And there's a lot of room for improvement around the education. So when people are on e-bikes, they need to realize they're heavier. The e-bike is heavier than a regular bike. It's moving faster. And so they need to slow down when they're going to be passing other people. They need to yield to more vulnerable road users. They should be communicating whether they're using their bell or they're using their voice to say, I'm passing on your left um, and, and providing an adequate passing distance. Same thing with signaling if they're turning. Anytime that they're changing what they're doing, and um, they should be communicating that. It's very important. And we've got a whole bunch of educational resources on bikehub.ca slash ebike. Uh, we know lots more people are getting them. We know the province provided a rebate recently for e-bikes, so that's making them even more popular. We hope that this is also integrated into what is looking like it's becoming more universally accessible school cycling education so that everyone is going to go through the school system and, and learn how to ride a bike safely, respectfully, including how to use an e-bike when they're old enough to do so. What's the relationship like in that I know there have been uh, some uh, clashes, I guess you could say, or I know that there are, are say, mountain bikers that that do more kind of off-road mountain biking and e-bikes that are on those trails. I know there have been uh, a difference of opinion, I suppose, on e-bikes on those trails with some concern that, that they could potentially harm the trails. But when we're talking about the more the paved bike lanes and the commuter routes that a lot of people use, so is, is the relationship a good one between, say, more traditional cyclists and people that are on the e-bikes? I think we're in a learning curve right now. Uh, I think most people are supportive. They want to see more people out cycling, whether that's electric assist cycling or traditional cycling. So that's a good news story. You know, getting people into more active modes benefits us all. And this learning curve involves people understanding they're on a heavier, faster bicycle. And so there's responsibilities with that. And um, I would love to see more education when people are being sold an e-bike for them to get this information that they need to be communicative, they need to slow down, they need to give space, uh, and that they can't just max out the speed on them uh, without putting other people in danger. Have you been hearing about more uh, crashes or more near misses involving them? I've heard some international studies that have talked a bit about that, but nothing locally. All right. So so you do think then it comes down to, to more education. What about enforcement? Enforcement would be helpful. It has to come with education. People can't be expected uh, to know these things with new technologies. Uh, so I think education is, is key and those folks that are out enforcing can use an educational approach. But if, for example, there are repeat offenders or there's something really egregious, then enforcement certainly plays a role. All right. Erin, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Appreciate your time.
Nice to be here. Thank you. Another business is closing its doors and has sent out a note saying to our valued customers, we will be closing the doors as of today at noon. And joining me to explain why is John Neitz, who is the CEO of JJ Bean. John, great to have you back on the show, uh, but uh, sad that it is for this reason. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on again. Uh, yes, we've, we're, we bought out of our Woodward's lease. We've got out early. We have another uh, two years left on the lease, but we've just had enough there. So we're closing the doors. Hmm. And when you say you've had enough, what does that mean? Well, we have on an average of uh, probably one every one and a half months, we have a broken window or a broken door. Uh, at least once a month, we have... Um, something stolen we've well and that's being reduced because we moved everything that normally we let our customers touch we've moved off the front shelving we've had a number of incidences of harassment with our staff in terms of because we won't let uh, our washrooms are for not for public use and there is a tremendous amount of drug addicts and that might be profiling but you can if you spend any time there you'll exactly what I'm talking about. People that look like they're strung out on drugs that are trying to use our washroom and they cause much destruction in our washrooms and they don't respect our needle boxes. We have needle boxes in our stores, in some of those stores to try to get these addicts who shoot up in our bathrooms to put the needles in the needle boxes and they put them in the garbage, which is obviously a danger to our staff. Uh, We had an incident just two weeks ago where one of our senior people was there, stopped somebody from coming in the washroom, and they took a milk container, took the lid off, and threw it at my manager. And hmm. Fortunately, just missed him, but it banged out against the wall, of course, and made a big, big mess. Hmm. And, and so the decision, though, to close down, even given what you just said and, and what's been happening in that neighborhood, that must still be difficult, though, is it to close down from a location like that? It's very difficult. We've never done this kind of thing before. Uh, Woodward's was, when we first opened, was really good. I mean, the Woodward's complex was kind of a um, breath of fresh air in that neighborhood. And then uh, COVID just made it all kind of fall apart. And the, there are security people there, but they don't seem willing to confront these people. We get phone calls all the time about how our windows have been broken. And they said, you know, would you like us to send you the, the footage? Well, no, we'd like you when you see someone going into the courtyard to stop them from breaking our windows. But that does not seem to happen they refused to lock the patio area at night and uh they said there was a fire code issue there which i didn't understand but anyways uh, woodward's ever since COVID has become an area of lawlessness as far as i see there's just doesn't seem to be any way to stop these people they're not considered criminals somehow although i believe theft and breaking windows is criminal behavior they're not arrested and there's, if they are arrested, they're not put in jail because they keep coming back. 
And when you say that it's since COVID, can you describe it a little bit? Because uh, people will be familiar with the Woodward's building and certainly the changes that have taken place there. If we go way back, I remember uh, covering the encampment that was outside the Woodward's building for, for a lengthy period of time. But then it's also kind of been touted as one of the first, if not the first, uh, buildings that, that became. Uh, so, yes, there are market condos, but there is also below market housing as part of that complex and kind of almost like a beacon of how buildings could be could be configured in a way that there is housing for everybody. So was it working then before COVID hit? I would say it was. I mean, in terms of the number of incidences that we were dealing with was, was minimal. There was, you know, people enjoying the courtyard. Uh, this, the Simon Fraser School there was active um, when the so you need you need a whole bunch of people to make a community, and when those people aren't appearing, like if the students aren't in school, if there's not people in the shops, there needs to be a certain mass of uh, of the general public to deter people that are of the negative element from showing up. And so when they can become the dominant population, then lawlessness ensues hmm. so it was it was working for sure i mean i think that part of the problem with COVID, as you remember there was that whole thing about defunding the police and i think there was something there in vancouver where the the police officers whether they felt disrespected or it was whatever the reason was there seemed to be a lack of police presence and they decided hey we're not going to put up with getting you know, disrespected and these people are, you know, we, we go to arrest them, they go right back out on the street. And now people are saying they don't believe the police do a good job. So it was kind of like a bit of uh, rebellion, I think, perhaps, I'm just guessing that rebellion on top of the police, part of the police that, hey, we don't want to go in these neighborhoods. These are awful neighborhoods. So if you won't give us respect to be in these neighborhoods, then forget it. We'll go somewhere else. We're still working, but so much easier to be uh, in other areas of the city than it is um, on Cordova and Hastings and Columbia and Hastings and Maine and all those areas. And so there's been encampment after encampment, and uh, you don't see a police presence there very often. Hmm. And so what would happen then? I, I would imagine, given what you've described, that there have been times when you've had to call police. What happens in that scenario? The police come. I mean, unfortunately, you know, there's they don't come as fast as if you have a heart attack. And they're usually, if, if we say our staff are being harassed and feeling threatened, they come right away. If we say a window was broken, well yeah, we'll be there. It's a non-emergency. Um, you know, someone just threw a milk container at one of our staff. Are they still there? No, it's a non-emergency. Um, someone's locked in our bathroom. Yes, we can often get police to come then. Um, but it depends on the, on the issue and they prioritize based on safety to our staff or to other customers. Right, which I think but kind over, of makes overall, sense. But, but yeah, but overall... I don't think the issue is personally with the police. Right. I think the issue is these people, you know, 
I've been in business for since 1996. And in all my locations, I've had over 100 windows broken. I have never, ever heard of someone being convicted for breaking windows, nor has anybody ever offered to pay for my windows. If these people are caught, they are, they do not go to jail. I know they don't go to jail because I've been never asked to testify. If they do something like throwing a melt pitcher, which is metal, which could do damage, that is not considered a criminal offense. Although to me, it's like, you know, attack with a deadly weapon or whatever that charge would be. But people don't seem to go to jail for the things they do. So I call it lawlessness. And it's, it seems to be allowed to happen without repercussion. Whether that is the prosecutors refusing to put these people in jail for what they might see as petty crimes, I'm not sure. But I, the police will do something if you ask. But why do these people continue to go uh, uh, in the streets? Why do we enable drug addicts to be drug addicts and, and have behaviors that endanger other people? I don't understand it. It, it, it. Someone has a free right to be a drug addict, and so we don't want to compromise their freedoms, even though they endanger other people. doesn't seem right to me. And clearly, and that's one of the big reasons why you're shutting down uh, this location. Uh, John, just to, to, to let people know, uh, I know people will be saddened to hear that this location is no longer open, but uh, you are keeping your other ones open. Are you having any of these issues at other locations? Yes, we are. Our Dunsmere location is not too far from Woodward's, maybe three blocks away. And that is a very similar scene. The police, there was an encampment in the, there's a BC Hydro Park right there at uh, Richards and Dunsmere. And that park has been a huge problem with homeless and drug addicts and um, people that steal from us, people that we had our washroom destroyed one day. Someone had an impact, you know. So I don't know. Uh, it seems to be getting a little better, but. The problem when you have all this activity is that customers see this and they don't want to be part of it. So our paying customers go, you know what, I'll go to another area of town that isn't potentially dangerous to me. Well, John, I know we will uh, talk more to you or with you about this uh, coming up and uh, future dates. We'll have to leave it there for today. But thank you so much. And uh, again, saddened to hear that you're shutting down that location. But thanks so much for talking to us about it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.